Bible and go with me to Zechariah chapter 9 this morning. We'll only be covering verses 9 to 11 and uh, saving the rest for next week. But before I read, let me try to explain how verses uh, 9 to 11 relate to some of the things we found uh, or we we observed last week uh, in verses 1 to 8. Uh, sometimes we can get kind of confused when the, the, the section breaks in our English translation. So this is all one piece here. And basically, uh, last week we saw that God will eventually cut down the arrogant nations. Uh, he will judge the world. But verses 7 to 8 promise uh, that God would also show mercy to a remnant among the nations, and, and he would do this by taking away their idols, he would do it by making them part of his covenant people, and also by bringing them into his presence. But the question becomes, well, how can God just cleanse people from their idolatry like that? Uh, and, and when the remnant is just as guilty as the rest of the nations, uh, how can he still be righteous and not punish them? Uh, how does verse 8 happen? Like when, the, when they're all dwelling in God's presence together as if there's now total peace between a holy God and a sinful people, how does that even become a reality? Well, verses 9 to 11 supply the answer. God will do all these things through the coming of one special king in Israel. He has been hinted at before in chapter 3 and chapter 6 is this one called the branch. But there's even more to love about him in verses 9 to 11. So let's, let's read about this king and his coming Starting in verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Father in heaven, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that you are one who condescends to us. And reveals yourself to us. You do not hide who you are or what you are doing in this world. You, you reveal it to us. You have spoken it for us to know you. And I pray that we would know you. That we would know your king more this morning. That we would grow to love him the more we hear about him. And that this would in turn change us, transform us as we wait for his arrival. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the way verse 9 begins, it seems as if the world ought to be sitting on the edge of their seats, waiting for this king's arrival. It begins with a call to rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. The reason for the rejoicing is then found in the very next line. Uh, Behold, your king is coming to you. Now this call to rejoice is is rather remarkable for for a few reasons. And, And one way it's remarkable is that it further develops the theme of God's own coming to his people. Several times over in Zechariah, Yahweh promises that he will eventually return 
to Jerusalem. In fact, if you'll turn with me back to chapter 2, verse 10, you will find a similar call to rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 10 has this same call to rejoice, but I want you to notice that it is applied to Yahweh's coming. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. What should we make of this alternation in Zechariah? And it will happen a couple more times in uh, chapters 9 through uh, 14. But what, would, what should we make of this alternation between God's coming on the one hand and his king's coming on the other? Well, I would say that it is Zechariah's way of saying that the king's coming is God's coming. The king shares such unity with God that the king's coming is equivalent to God's coming. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read about God's coming in the, old, in, in, in the Bible, especially in the prophets, uh, things don't turn out so great for sinners. God's coming to earth is terrifying because it means judgment for wicked people like me. But this brings up another way this call to rejoice is remarkable. Namely, this king comes to show favor to sinners. All the sinners that he has chosen by mercy, whether from Israel or the nations, all of them that he has gathered to his Zion, he comes to show them favor. If you want to capture more of the Hebrew idiom here, it's not merely that your king is coming to you, though that's certainly true, but also that this king is coming for you. He comes for your benefit. He doesn't come like other kings who just want the power at the people's expense. This king pursues the best interest of his people. Behold, your king is coming for you. If there's anything we need, most of all, it's for God to show us favor despite our rebellion against him. That's what this king comes to do. He comes to show us favor when, when all that we deserve is judgment. And this is really the overarching hope bound up with all the promises in Scripture in relation to this king. The offspring of a woman would one day come and show us favor by crushing the serpent's head. The offspring of Abraham would one day come and show us favor by giving many peoples a right standing with God. The offspring of Judah would one day come and show us favor by establishing a plentiful kingdom. The offspring of David would one day come and show us favor by reigning with perfect peace. And in comes Zechariah, only that his contribution moves us even closer to that king's arrival. The word is spoken to them as if he's already on his way. And that's big news for a people who are still sitting under the oppression of evil and still sitting in the guilt of their sins. It's comparable to the joy, you know, you feel at the battle of Helm's Deep. When all seems lost and the people are on the brink of destruction as evil swarms around them and in bursting forth from the east is the great white horse uh, uh, arrival. Behold, Zechariah tells them, your king is coming for you. God set this king apart. He, he is their hope. And though his coming be in a future day, the effects of his kingdom were worth celebrating in the present. The certainty of his victory was occasion to still shout and sing aloud. We'll see some of the effects of his kingdom in a moment. But let's look next at this king's character. What's he like? I mean, lots of kings throughout history have come, and not many of them are worth rejoicing over. What will this king be like? Well, four things stand out about him. We're told first in verse 9 that he is righteous. 
That's a big deal for Israel, especially coming out of the exile. You may recall that Israel's kings didn't have the greatest track record. Even their best kings, like King David and King Josiah, they had their own rebellious moments and their own lusts to deal with. None of them could sit on the throne and reign forever because none of them were righteous on their own. They were plagued with the same sin that characterized all born in Adam, and therefore each one of them died. You see, God has built into the fabric of this universe a moral standard based on His character, and that is righteousness. It's required that all men live up to this moral standard or you die. Not only did Adam fail in this regard, but we all failed in this regard. The scriptures teach that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, and therefore none of us deserve to rule as we were meant to rule. No, we all deserve death because of sin. Well, this king, however, would be different. This king will not just answer all of Israel's Hopes for somebody that would finally come and be righteous and live. It would answer the world's hopes. This special king would himself be righteous. No impulse from within himself would desire to do anything other than please God. He would uphold God's moral standard. He would obey God's will fully. In mind, will, and emotion, this king would reflect God's character perfectly on earth. And two weeks ago, Ben even pointed you to a picture of this king's righteousness, working itself out on earth. You may remember this from Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, it says, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. This king's righteousness wouldn't be something that he kept only to himself. It would be a righteousness that he shares with others. It would be a righteousness that spreads throughout the countryside and that fundamentally changes a lost people into a saved people, into a vul- uh, from a vulnerable people to a safe and secure people, into a people who once boasted in their own works, into a people who can only say the Lord is our righteousness. Second, the king is also victorious. He is victorious. Verse 9 in the ESV describes him as having salvation. It's difficult to get across in English, but, but there's a passive idea in this word implying that the king himself would be saved. Now, that's to say that the king is saved isn't to say that he needed saving from his sin. We just established that he was righteous. Rather, it's like saying that God would vindicate this king. Uh, That is to say, because he is a king who obeys God completely, God chooses to save him. God chooses to vindicate him. And this is very similar to the descriptions we find elsewhere in Scripture where we see God vindicating his chosen and anointed king for his king's obedience, even in the midst of affliction. Uh, We might think here of Psalm 22, for example, where the Davidic king is crying out for God to save him from his enemies. The king is faithful to God even in the face of affliction, and as a result, God responds by rescuing this king, by vindicating this king for his obedience. And so, for this king to be saved is for him to be victorious, and therefore, he's the only one Having salvation, which we see here. Salvation comes with this king because he's the only one that God is pleased to vindicate. There are no other kings that God is pleased to vindicate. His obedience alone is worthy of honor and reward. He is victorious. Third, verse 9 further describes this king as humble. 
humble. That's a good translation, as I think it brings out the nature of his coming. Uh, remember from earlier that this king shares such unity with God. Let me say he's one with God. That his coming is equivalent to God's coming. For God to manifest his presence among sinful human beings shows a great deal of humility already. There's no greater act of humility than when God, uh, when the God who dwells in unapproachable light stoops to come for a sinful people. But there's even more bound up with this humility. The Hebrew can also be translated poor or afflicted. And this further develops the kind of humility seen in this king. He doesn't come for his people uh, while clinging to the privileges of his royalty. He doesn't come clinging to the riches. Rather, he trades his riches for rags. This word was already used to describe the poor uh, back in chapter 7, verse 10. And it's used in relation to this king. It, it, it's, it mentions the poor and the widows and the orphans and the sojourners. And here it's saying this king is poor. This king becomes poor for the sake of his people. He identifies with them. The same word also appears in the Psalms where the Davidic king is afflicted for his obedience to God. And it seems that Zechariah is picking up on those earlier references and applying them to this coming king. His path of obedience will lead him to become poor and experience affliction. He will choose the uncomfortable road of suffering if it means showing his people favor. Finally, this king is a peacemaker. He is a peacemaker. It says that he comes humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there are times in the Bible when some kings would ride on donkeys. Genesis 49 is an example of this, where it envisions a king from Judah's line who would bind his colt to the choicest vine. The idea being that that his coming would establish an abundant kingdom on earth. I'll tie my donkey up to my grapevines. I'll let him eat the grapes. The land is so plentiful. So this is the idea of this this king in Genesis 49. Well, that king of Genesis 49 seems to be this king here. But we must note the significant contrast in verses 9 and 10 if we're to understand kind of what, what exactly he's getting, more of what he's getting at with this donkey uh, imagery. Uh, there's a horse mentioned in verse 10, and that horse in verse 10 is an instrument of war. So the horse is the instrument of war, according to verse 10, not the donkey. And the point is that when this, come, when this king comes to establish his abundant kingdom, he will not come, at least first, to make war. He will come first in peace. Riding a beast of burden. He will not advance his kingdom with military power and violence. He will come with a more peaceable mission. And that really leads into us, us into our next look at what this king would actually do. We've looked at his arrival. We've looked at his character Now what will he accomplish in his mission? Three things stand out in verses 10 to 11. First off, he will bring peace to all nations. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. You know, when we think of peace, Ask you, what is peace? I mean, many of us in here would raise our hand and say something along the lines of, well, the absence of war or the absence of conflict. And we see this king doing that much by removing the people's weapons. 
Isaiah even uh, looked to a similar day when, when swords would be turned into plowshares and spears in, into pruning hooks and nation would no longer war against uh, nation. But I want you to notice also that true peace includes much more than just the absence of war. True peace has more to do with God blessing the world with his presence and his perfect rule. It's more, something more, um, more positive. True peace has more to do with God blessing the world with his presence and perfect rule. So yes, while the presence of this king will end all war, his presence will also create new realities among people that reflect God's perfect rule on earth. Uh, we saw some of these already earlier in Zechariah. Um, if you remember the the children would be playing in the streets without fear. Why won't, why won't there be any fear that they're playing in the streets? Because there's, there's, there is no uh, war. There's no... Uh, people are living rightly and thinking rightly. And they don't have any fear of, of being harmed. They, they live under God's rule. Or, or chapter 8, verses 12 and 14, we learn that there would be this future sowing of peace. Peace would be scattered like the seed. And, and it would end up producing not just a plentiful land... But it says an obedient people. An obedient people who, who uh, actually showed justice to their neighbor. Uh, in our passage, unity is also included in this piece. Uh, you may remember that at one point in Israel's history, Israel became a divided nation against itself. Uh, separating into the northern and the southern kingdoms. And here, Ephraim represents the northern kingdom and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, its capital city at least. But here in this passage, we find them parallel to one another. This is poetry. And when you find things parallel to one another, they're both informing each other. So if he's stripping the uh, chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and they're in parallel to one another, it suggests that this king's rule will establish unity once again in the nation. God's covenant people would no longer be divided, but made one. You get the same thing in Isaiah 11 and Ezekiel 37. And, moreover, this peace wouldn't be limited to Israel. God's rule through this king would extend outward from Israel to encompass all peoples, he shall speak peace to the nations. Turbulent nations that devour one another and raise their fists against God will come under the omnipotent hush of this king. Notice that he doesn't silence them with the sword, but he silences them with his word. He will speak peace to the nations. These nations will listen, in other words. And obey. Which leads us to something else that this king will do. Namely, he will cover the earth with God's rule. He will cover the earth with God's rule. His rule will go beyond the borders of the promised land to encompass all peoples. Verse 10 says that his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. God will grant his king total dominion. The exact same language appears in Psalm 72, verse 8. Psalm 72 is a prayer written in Solomon's day. And in this prayer, they are asking God to give justice to his anointed king in David's line. Remember, David's already dead at this point. They're praying for another David to come in David's line. And, and so give justice to this future king. And every request has something to do with that future king so exercising God's righteousness on earth that everything prospers, the poor are lifted up, the arrogant are put down, and all the nations come to worship this king until the entire earth is filled with the glory of God. That's where the prayer ends. Well, right in the middle of that prayer, we get the same sentence we see here, only it's spoken as the prayer. 
May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, Zechariah is saying that God is answering that prayer by sending this king to rule. The the prayer of Psalm 72, I mean, the king prayed for in Psalm 72 is the king promised here in Zechariah 9. Can you imagine your people crying for centuries? Remember, this prayer is written back in Solomon's day. Now we're after the exile. People crying for centuries for God to give the earth this king. And then God answering with a word from this prophet, Oh, he is coming, dear ones. And all peoples will experience God's rule on earth through him. So if God is listening, God is hearing our requests, he's going to bring him. One more thing that he'll do. He will liberate prisoners on the basis of a new covenant. He will liberate prisoners on the basis of a new covenant. This is in verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, a waterless pit refers to the empty cisterns that the nations would use to put someone in captivity. You know, they were designed to capture rainwater. But hey, they double as a nice prison if you don't like somebody. So remember, Joseph's brothers did the same to him. They put him in a pit, but it didn't, it notes, it didn't have any water in it. Got the same thing going on here. Uh, so at At times, the nations would put Israelites in in these pits during the exile. famous example is uh, Jeremiah himself gets thrown into one of these pits. Um, In Jeremiah 38. Or Jeremiah 2, it speaks of of the whole nation. that They have forsaken, uh, God says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's a cistern? It's the prison. They didn't drink from God's fountain. He sent them into exile and imprisoned them in the broken cisterns. So Zechariah is using this pit as a symbol of exile. It's a reminder of their captivity under God's hand of judgment. And in some sense, it shows them once again that their exile really isn't over all the way. Yeah, they've returned from the land. But that was just the first stage in their rescue from exile. Other things still had to happen if they were going to experience true liberation. You see, other enemies still held them captives. Enemies that are far worse than pagan nations. Babylon might have been able to put them in a pit, but it's their own sin that would put them in hell. Enemies like sin and death still loomed over their souls. But what God is promising here is their final deliverance from that captivity. And he will do this on the basis of, he says, the blood of my covenant with you. There are basically two places where this same exact phrase appears. One is in Exodus 24 and one is with, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, Jesus at the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant that is built in my blood. But I want you to track with me. Let's rewind. Pretend I didn't mention the part about Jesus yet. I was trying to keep his name hidden until the end here. The only way that God could relate to sinful people was through the shedding of blood. So on several occasions, he sealed his covenants with blood. And this is especially the case in Exodus 24, verse 8, where this same expression appears. Moses ratifies the law covenant with Israel by sprinkling the people with blood. The only problem is that Israel couldn't keep their end of the covenant. And the rest of their history just continues to show they fail and they fail and they fail again. And the exile was even evidence of that. They deserve God's curse, not his blessing. But Zechariah seems to envision a day when better blood would be spilt 
in association with this king's coming. And at that point, the shackles of sin and death would be shattered once and for all. They would truly be delivered from their exile. This is a covenant that God makes with Zion. And Zion is already here a picture, not just of Israel, but of all God's elect, from Jew and Gentile alike. You get that if you read just from verses 7 all the way to 9. He hasn't changed subjects. He, he just said he'd bring a remnant in. He would encamp at my house. Where is God's house? Well, it's in Jerusalem. And he would go and he would, no oppressor would again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes this. And, and, and it's Jew and Gentile alike that have been gathered into his kingdom, into, into Zion. And then he picks up right off in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Who's daughter of Zion? He just told us. It's Israel, his covenant people, and all the remnant from among the nations dwelling with him. He makes his covenant with them. Hebrews chapter 13 speaks of the blood of God's eternal covenant. The covenant he makes with all his elect. When this better, when better blood was spilt in relation to God's covenant with his people, Zion, the shackles of sin and death would be shattered once and for all. For Jew and Gentile alike that he's gathered into his kingdom. So these are the reasons, these are his reasons, for all of Zion's children to rejoice at this king's arrival. He comes for their benefit to bring peace to the nations, to cover the earth with God's rule, and to liberate them on the basis of a new covenant. And there's only one king who has the character to actually accomplish all of this. And the New Testament says that his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone fits the bill of Zechariah 9. John says so himself in chapter 12, verse 16, where he quotes from Zechariah 9 and says that these things were written about Jesus. Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus is riding in to Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. Everybody's shouting Hosanna in the highest. He says, look, he's coming humble and mounted on a donkey. And these things were written. I mean, in, in these, he did these things in order to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah has said. Read the eyewitness accounts of Jesus in the Gospels and you will see that Jesus is the righteous king. Nobody can find any wrong in him, and at every turn, he pleases God the Father in all that he does. And that qualifies him to be the unblemished sacrifice we need to be forgiven. His blood is better than what Moses sprinkled on the people, because his blood actually liberates from the power of sin and establishes a new covenant built on better promises, Hebrews 9 and 13 tell us. This is why he comes to proclaim good news to the poor. And what else? To proclaim release to the captives. Release to the captives. People held captive by sin, death, and the devil. Read the Gospels and you will find that Jesus is also victorious. Yes, his earthly ministry ended in a bloody crucifixion where he seemed so helpless. But it was there that he was actually suffering by the will of God to cover your sins and to avert the wrath of God. And we know this because God heard his cries from Gethsemane. God heard his cry from the cross and he raised his king from the dead three days later. And it's because of that victory over sin and death that God liberates sinners. Read and you will find that Jesus is humble. John brings this out very well in John chapter 1. He is one with God in essence, but distinct in person. He has rights as the creator of the universe, and yet this one took on flesh. He set aside his rights to be seen as glorious and became poor for our sake. 
Indeed, he became afflicted even to the point of death on a cross where he died as a sacrifice in the place of sinners like you and me. Here's the answer to how God cleanses us from our idolatry. Jesus' blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Here's the answer to how a guilty remnant can enter God's presence unscathed by his holy wrath. Jesus humbles himself beneath the wrath of God. He came from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows that we might have a relationship with God and be raised up with him. Read and you will find that Jesus is also a peacemaker. He did not come in his first coming to make war. He came to make peace with sinners Paul says that through his death, Jesus brings us both peace with God and peace with one another. Jesus, in fact, tore down the dividing wall of hostility so that even Gentiles like you and me might become part of God's covenant people, even though we don't deserve it. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus came and he preached peace to you who were far off. That's the Gentiles and peace to those who were near. That's Israel. And right now, Jesus is spreading that same peace worldwide through the preaching of the cross as his church announces it. Of course, we must admit that not everything mentioned in Zechariah 9 has been accomplished yet. We can say with confidence that this king has truly come. When Jesus mounted a donkey's colt and rode into Jerusalem... But what do we make of him spreading God's rule from sea to sea? We must say that that ultimate fulfillment awaits a second coming. The New Testament helps us see that the prophets often spoke about the end times as one collage of events without indicating how far apart the fulfillment of those events would be. Some people have illustrated this by referring to the mountain peaks of prophecy. If you've ever traveled to see mountains, there are occasions when, you, when from one perspective a whole mountain range can look like a single mountain and you can't really discern how far apart all the ridges are. I experienced this in Turkey last week and here's a picture of the one that I saw. This is Mount Erkies and from this perspective it all looks like one big mountain. You can still see that there are different peaks on the way up that mountain, but you can't make out how far apart they are as you can from this perspective. Here's another image. That's the same mountain. After we drove around it, you can see every one of those ridges are laid out and you can now see distances, separation between them. The first image that you saw illustrates a prophet's perspective in the Old Testament. He sees the mountain peaks of future events, but he can't really tell how far apart they are. And as Christians, we believe the New Testament helps explain the development of those future events. In this case, we've seen the king humble and mounted on a donkey... We've experienced a new covenant established in his blood. We hear him speaking peace to the nations right now in the preaching of the gospel. But we have yet to see the fullness of his kingdom arrive. And that will come in due time. As the book of Revelation confirms. In fact, we must say that the coming of his final kingdom in glory is just as certain as his first coming in humility. Think about it with me. If the prophets are speaking of these same events in the same breath of Jesus' first coming and his second coming, and we've already experienced the first confirmation of that, the second's just as good, folks. He's going to come. It's the same prophet speaking the same words, the same Holy Spirit doing all of this. His first coming is evidence that God is faithful to his word. He sent his king just as he said he would. The same will be true of him extending God's rule from sea to sea. His promises are indeed yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Which means that we have every reason to rejoice. Christians can truly rejoice in the coming of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you will have nothing to rejoice in. You have nothing to rejoice in right now. 
Apart from a relationship with Jesus, you're only storing up wrath for yourself with every day that passes as you presume upon God's patience. But you don't have to stay there, the Bible tells us. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and you too will be able to rejoice with us in this King. His coming means that all of Christ's followers can truly rejoice. Now, that call to rejoice doesn't ignore the present pain of this world. Any more than God was ignoring the pain Israel experienced in Zechariah's day. It was partly because of their pain that he gave them this hope in the first place. Even the angel of the Lord cried out in chapter 1 over the desperate condition of uh, of their situation. God, how long? And we know that cry, don't we? How much longer? How much longer, God? Friends and family members still dying. Cancer and diabetes and migraines and chronic fatigue still frustrate us and make us miserable. Abortion clinics are open across town while we gather here. The devil still roams around like a roaring lion. Your flesh still tempts you. The creation is groaning with earthquakes and famine and floods. How do we rejoice with all the pain around? God. God pierces through the dark clouds of our despair and gives his people the light of a coming king. Unlike some other religions, we don't find joy by pretending the pain is not there. We weep over the real state of our broken world, but we do not weep without hope. Rather, we find joy by seeing that Jesus Christ is the answer to every longing we feel for freedom and peace and healing and happiness. The King has come, folks. He has come to bring our freedom and our peace and our joy. He has come to begin the work of a new creation. He just came and he came first in a way that would guarantee that we actually get to join him in it. He came first in humility that we might join him in glory. Our worst fear which is death under the wrath of God, is behind us. Your worst fear is behind you. Our greatest enemy, death, he's defeated. The serpent's head has been crushed. And we belong to the king whose kingdom will swallow the earth one day. Already he has come, already he is reigning, already he is speaking peace to the nations, and even though we suffer the pain of the not yet, the already is cause for singing even with tears and knots lodged in our throat. As citizens of Christ's kingdom, we can truly rejoice. And in our rejoicing, we can also display Christ's humility. We have the incredible privilege of mirroring to the world what our king is like. If Jesus' rule is characterized by humility, then it's incumbent on us to follow him in his humility. You get that in Philippians 2 and 1 Peter 2 as well. And uh, being it's the Christmas season, I thought the words of J.I. Packer were rather fitting for us to hear in light of our king's humility. This is from his chapter on the incarnation in his book, Knowing God. J.I. Packer, great Anglican brother, uh, says, We talk glibly about the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more than by this, Uh, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis. But what we have said makes it clear that the phrase should in fact carry tremendous weight of meaning. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. 
And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all year round. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, I will be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God may meet those needs, averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. That is not the Christmas spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians, alas, they are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christian spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just to their friends in whatever way there seems need. The Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor to enrich their fellow humans. That captures what the citizens of this king look like. What might that look like? Maybe a few examples. I mean, if we are parents, it starts with not viewing ourselves as too highly above our children. I mean, we get down on their level. We consider their interests as better than our own and we look for ways to serve their eternal good. The home provides us with moment-by-moment opportunities to make the humility of our king shine. Or if you're a man, consider the affront that Jesus' humility is to the world's vision of manliness. Our culture normally associates manliness with the power to get what we want when we want it at the expense of others. The world equates strength with domination. But what do we find in the one who is truly righteous here? He is king of the world, and yet he stoops to serve the world. He doesn't assert his power at the expense of others. He uses his power to serve and to save others. Or consider how the humility of our king informs the way we might go about our mission in the face of things like Islamic jihadism. Unlike Islamic jihadism, Christianity should not advance the gospel by taking the lives of others. Christ's kingdom is not of this world, and its success does not depend on physical strength or military power. Christ's kingdom advances through spiritual means, like compassionate gospel preaching and suffering in the path of loving our enemies. Or maybe consider what humility looks like with your neighbors in this city. Humbling ourselves will mean looking for opportunities to serve them, yes. But it will also mean leaving the comforts of our home to meet them and interact with them. Or perhaps inviting them into your home to feed them. Humility will mean taking up the life of another with all of its needs and with all of its messiness and making that life our own. This is just a few examples, but wherever you may be this morning, growing in humility will not come merely by looking at yourself or even by merely changing a few behaviors here and there. 
growing in humility will only come with taking long looks at the king that Zechariah anticipated and the king we see in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, and learning to rejoice in the ways that he has come already for you. The more you grow in your love for his humility, as he came and died for you, the more your own heart will be compelled to love others in the same way. So start there with him, looking at him. And then finally, many of us will be gathering with family members and friends this week for Christmas, and many of these occasions provide excellent opportunities to announce peace to others. Not the peace that they, that the world normally uh, puts in front of them around Christmas time, with cheap sentimentality and things, but we, we want to ground them in the peace that is found alone in Jesus Christ, who reconciles men to God and men to one another because of that reconciliation to God. So as fast as news gets pushed around uh, social media, and as fast as people like to publish their solutions for the world to read, it's very likely that you will have an open door to speak about how Christ is our only hope for true and lasting peace. Especially with all the headlines. Syrian refugee crisis. The coalition against ISIS. The tensions with Russia. The heated exchanges between candidates running for president. Which one has the best foreign policy? People are talking about these headlines. And only rarely do they have good solutions. And even the good ones either won't last very long or wouldn't pass legislation. So this is a great opportunity to point them to the rock-solid confidence that people can have in Jesus to establish peace. In Jesus to spread his kingdom from sea to sea. Take them to Zechariah 9 and show them how Jesus will disarm the nations. Or perhaps the tensions are on a much smaller scale. And the division isn't just something out there in the news, but you will experience it in the living room and at the table with close relatives. Again, this is a great opportunity to look to Christ and point others to him as well. If, if he's able to disarm the nations and spread God's rule from sea to sea, he can deal with your family's arguments. He can deal with your disputes. He can handle the tensions in your family. So pray for him to bring the peace that surpasses all comprehension into the lives of those that you will interact with. And let's hold out great hope in this coming king to be the cause of their rejoicing too. And we pray together.